Section 66 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 66. Social and Economic Conditions of the Roman Empire in the 4th Century, by Paul Vinogradov. Part 3. The policy of compulsion and the spread of caste were undoubtedly responsible to a great extent for another social process of great moment, namely for the formation of the colonnate, an institution destined to play an important part in medieval peasant life. Its roots stretch far back into the earlier history of Roman husbandry. Columella, a writer on agriculture of the first century AD, instructs his readers that it is advantageous for owners of estates of insufficient fertility and difficult cultivation to employ free farmers, coloni, instead of slaves. The tenants were sometimes settled on the metayer system, colonia patriaria, the farmers sharing crops with the owner. Juridically, the relation was regulated by the rules of the law of lease, locatio conductio, and the digest often refers to the various problems arising under this contract. Custom and tacit agreement played a great part in the treatment of such questions in practice. By the side of contractual relations between private landlords and tenants stood administrative regulations as to the management of vast domains of the crown and of the private patrimony of the emperor. Crowds of tenants were settled on these estates who had to look for a guarantee to the possession of their holdings rather to the equity and properly understood interest of their imperial masters than to formal contractual right. Lastly, a good many slaves were put into a position similar to that of the tenants of free birth, and as a matter of fact it got to be more and more difficult to distinguish between colony by contract and quasi-colony by long usage and customary tenure. One trait which tended to reduce the distance between the different groups was the heavy indebtedness of most free farmers. They had often to take their agricultural outfit from the landowner along with the farm. In case of economic difficulties, they turned to him as to their natural protector and the capitalist near at hand, and when once debts had been made, it was exceedingly difficult to pay them off. Fourth-century legislation approaches these relations in its usual despotic manner. A law of Constantine, dated A.D. 332, gives us the first glimpse of a new order of men standing between the free and the unfree, and treated, in fact, as serfs of the glebe. It runs thus, With whomever a colonus belonging to someone else, alieni iuris, may be discovered, let the new patron not only restore the colonus to the place of his birth, origini, but let him also pay the tax for the time of his absence. As for the colony themselves who contemplate flight, let them be put into fetters after the manner of slaves, so that they should perform duties worthy of free men on the strength of a servile condemnation. Codex Theodosius, Volume 17, 1 But from Constantine again, we have another enactment marking the other side of the condition, 
namely the legal protection afforded to the colonus against possible exactions. About AD 325, the emperor laid down in a rescript to the vicarius of the east that a colonus from whom a landlord exacted more than it was customary to render, and then had been obtained from him in former times, may apply to the judge nearest at hand and produce evidence of the wrong. The person who is convicted of having claimed more than he used to receive shall be prohibited to do so in the future after having given back what he extorted by illegal superexaction. Codex Justinianus 11.51 The legal protection afforded to the colony was not suggested by principles of humanity, but by the necessity of keeping up at least some portion of the previous personal freedom of these peasants in order to safeguard the interest of the state, which looked upon this part of the population as the mainstay of its fiscal system. If the emperors made light of the right of free citizens to choose their abode and their occupations as they pleased, and did not scruple to attach the colony to their tenures, the absolute right of landowners to do what they pleased with their land was not more sacred to them. Constantine imposed the most stringent limitations on their power of alienating plots of land. If someone wants to sell an estate or to grant it, he has not the right to retain colony by private agreements in order to transfer them to other places. Those who consider colony to be useful must either hold them together with the estates, or, if they despair of getting profit from these estates, let them also give up the colony for the use of other people. Codex Theodosianus 13, 10, 3 A.D. 357. In the reign of Valentinian, Valens, and Gratian, about A.D. 375, this principle is characteristically extended to the very slaves. As born cultivators, originari, cannot be sold without their land, even so it is forbidden to sell agricultural slaves inscribed in the census rolls nor must the law be evaded in a fraudulent manner, as has often been practiced in the case of originari, namely that while a small piece of land is handed over to the buyer, the cultivation of the whole estate is made impossible. But if entire estates or portions of them pass to a new owner, so many slaves and born cultivators should be transferred at the same time as used to stay with the former owners in the whole or in its parts. Codex Justinianus, 11.48.7 The fiscal point of view is clearly expressed on many occasions. Valentinian and Valens entrust the landowners with the privilege of collecting the taxes of their colony for the state, with the exception of those tenants who have besides their farms some land of their own. Codex Theodosianus, 11.1.14 This right and duty might be burdensome, but it certainly gave the landlords a powerful lever in reducing their free tenants to a condition of almost servile subjection. Perhaps the most drastic expression of the process may be seen in the fact that colony lose their right to implede their masters in civil actions, except in cases of superexaction. In criminal matters they were still deemed possessed of the full rights of citizens. Codex Justinianus 11.52 
but it would be wrong to suppose that the condition of the farmers of the 4th and 5th centuries is characterized by mere oppression and deterioration. In the case of rustic slaves, it is clearly seen that their fate was much improved by the course of events and by legislation. Their masters lost part of their former absolute authority, because the state began to supervise the relations between master and slave for the sake of keeping cultivators to their work and thereby ensuring the coming in of taxes. Considerations of a similar nature exerted an influence on the fate of Colony, and they made themselves felt not only in social legislation but also in husbandry. The tremendous agrarian crisis through which the empire was passing could not be weathered by mere compulsion and discipline. On a large scale, it was a case like the one described in Calumella's advice to landowners. If you want to get your land cultivated under difficult conditions, do not try to manage it by slave labor and direct orders, but entrust it to farmers. The great latifundia of earlier times were parceled up into small plots, because only small cultivators could stand the storm of hostile invasion, of dislocation of traffic, of depopulation. Nor was it possible for the landowner to demand rack rents and to avail himself of the competition between agricultural laborers. He had to be content if he succeeded in providing his estates with tenants ready to take care of them at moderate and customary rents, and both sides, the lord and the tenant, were interested in making the leases hereditary, if not perpetual. Thus there is a second aspect to the growth of the colonnade. The institution was not only one of the forms of compulsion and caste legislation, but also a quote-unquote meliorative device, a means for keeping up culture and putting devastated districts under the plough. Among the earliest roots of the colonnade we find the license given to squatters and peasants dwelling in villages adjoining wasteland to occupy such land and to acquire tenant right on it by the process of culture. The Emperor Hadrian published a general enactment protecting such tenants on imperial domains, and the African inscriptions testify that his regulations did not remain a dead letter. This feature cultivation of waste and amelioration of culture, is seldom expressed in as many words in the enactments of the Codex Theodosianus and of the Codex Justinianus, because the laws and rescripts collected there are chiefly concerned with the legal and fiscal aspects of the situation. The legislators had no occasion to speak directly of low rents and remissions in their payment. Yet even in these documents, some indications of the quote-unquote amphitutic tendency may be gleaned. I will just call attention to one of the earliest quote-unquote constitutions relating to the colonnade, namely to the decree of Constantine of A.D. 319. Codex Justinianus 1163-1 It is directed against encroachments of colony on the lands of persons who held their estates by the technical title of Amphiteutai, of which we shall have more to say by and by. It is explained that Coloni have no right to occupy lands for the culture of which they have done nothing. Quote, by custom they are allowed to acquire only plots which they have planted with olives or vines. End quote. This ruling is entirely in conformity 
with the Lex Hadriana de Rudibus Agris, and testifies to the peculiar right of occupation conceded to cultivators of waste. The technical requirement of making plantations of olive trees or vines corresponds exactly to the Greek expression thutewin, which reappears in the term amphiteusis, so much in use in the later centuries of the empire. Of course, cultivation of the waste was not restricted in practice to the rearing of these two kinds of useful trees, nor can the view so clearly formulated in this case have failed to assert itself on other occasions, especially in the relations between landlord and tenant. But the luxuriant growth of amphiteosis as a widely prevalent contract is very characteristic of the epoch. The amphiteosis of the later empire is distinguished from other leases by three main features. It is hereditary. The rent paid is fixed and generally slight. The lessee undertakes specific duties in regard to amelioration of the plot and may lose the tenancy if he does not carry them out. These peculiarities were so marked that there was considerable doubt whether the relation of amphiteosis was originated by the sale of a plot by one owner to the other with certain conditions as to the payment of rent or by a downright lease. A constitution of Zeno, published between 476 and 484, decided the controversy in the sense that the contract was a peculiar one, standing, as it were, between a sale and a lease. Codex Justinianus 466.1 The meaning of such a doctrine was, of course, that in many cases rights arose under the cover of dominium, Roman absolute property, which amounted in themselves to a new hereditary possession, and arising from the labor and capital sunk by the subordinate possessor into the cultivation of the estate, and leaving a very small margin for the claims of the proprietor. Such hybrid legal relations do not come into being without strong economic reasons, and these reasons are disclosed by the history of the tenure in question. Its antecedents go far back into earlier epochs, although the complete institution was matured only towards the end of the 5th century. One of the roots of amphiteosis we have already noticed in the occupation of wasteland by squatters or cultivators dwelling on adjoining plots. In the 4th and 5th centuries, the emperors not only allow such occupation, but make it a duty for possessors of a state in a proper state of cultivation to take over waste plots. This is the basis of the so-called epiboli, epibole, of the imposition of desert to fertile land, an institution which arose at the time of Aurelian and continued to exist in the Byzantine Empire. It is worth noticing that the law of Valentinian, Theodosius, and Arcadius gives everyone leave to take possession of deserted plots. Should the former owner not assert his rights in the course of two years, and compensate the new occupier for ameliorations, his property right is deemed extinguished to the profit of the new cultivator. Codex Justinianus 11.59.8 In this case, voluntary occupation is still the occasion of the change of ownership, but several other laws make the taking over a wasteland compulsory. 
An indirect but important consequence of the same view may be found in the fact that the right of possessors of estates to alienate portions of the same was curtailed. They were not allowed to sell land under profitable cultivation without at the same time disposing of the barren and less profitable parts of the estate. The government took care that the quote-unquote nerves of a prosperous exploitation should not be cut. A second line of development was presented by leases made with the intention of ameliorating the culture of certain plots. The practice of such leases may be followed back into great antiquity, especially in provinces with Greek or Hellenized population. And it is on such estates that the terms phytewain and phytosis first appear in a technical sense. A good example is presented by the tables discovered on the site of Heraclea in the Gulf of Tarentum, where land belonging to the Temple of Dionysus was leased to hereditary tenants about B.C. 400 on the condition of the construction of farm buildings and the plantation of olives and vines. Amphitheotic leases of the same kind, varying in details, but based on the main conditions of amelioration and hereditary tenancy, have been preserved from the 2nd century A.D. in the Boeotian town of Thisbe. Roman jurists, e.g. Alpian, mention distinctly the peculiar legal position of such amphitheotic tendencies. And there can be no doubt that as the difficulties of cultivation and economic intercourse increased, great landowners, corporations and cities resorted more and more to this expedient for ensuring some cultivation to their estates, even at the cost of creating tenancies which restricted owners in the exercise of their right. A third variety of relations making towards the same goal may be observed in the so-called perpetual right, jus perpetuum. It arose chiefly in consequence of conquest of territories by the Roman state. The title of former owners was not extinguished thereby, but converted into a possession subordinate to the superior ownership of the Roman people, and liable to the payment of a rent, vectigal, canon. The distinction between Roman land entirely free from any tax and provincial land subject to tax or rent was removed in the 2nd century AD when land in Italy was made subject to taxes. But the legal conception of tenant right subject to the eminent domain of the emperor remained and the use perpetuum continued as a special kind of tenure on the estates of cities and of the crown, as we should say nowadays, until it was merged into the general right of amphitheosis, together with the two other species already mentioned. These juridical distinctions are not in the nature of purely technical details. The great need of cultivation and the wide concessions made in its interest in favor of effective farming are as significant as the subdivision of ownership in regard to the same plot of land, one person obtaining what may be called in later terminology the useful rights of ownership, dominium utile, while the other detains a superior right nevertheless, dominium eminence. In this, as in many other points, the peculiarities of medieval law are foreshadowed in the declining empire. 
This observation applies even more to the part assumed by great landowners in the 4th and 5th centuries. A great estate in those times comes to form in many respects a principality, a separate district for purposes of taxation, police and even justice. Already in the 1st century AD, Frontinus speaks of country seats of African magnates surrounded by villages of their dependents as if by bulwarks. By the side of the Kivitas, the town forming the natural and legal center of a district, appears the Saltus, the rural, more or less uncultivated district organized under a private lord or under a steward of the emperor. The more important of these rural units are extraterritorial, outside the jurisdiction and administration of the towns. By and by, the seemingly omnipotent government of the emperor is driven by its difficulties to concede a large measure of political influence to the aristocracy of large landowners. They collect taxes, carry out conscription, influence ecclesiastical appointments, act as justices of the peace in police matters and petty criminal cases. The disruptive, or rather the disaggregating forces of local interests and local separatism come thus to assert themselves long before the establishment of feudalism under the various way of absolute monarchy and centralized bureaucracy. If the formation of the colonnade means the establishment of an order of half-free persons intermediate between free citizens and slaves, if amphitheosis amounts to a change in the conception of ownership, the rise of the privileges and power of landowners corresponds to the appearance of a new aristocracy, which was destined to play a great part in the history of medieval Europe. Besides what was directly conceded to these lords by the central authority, we must reckon with their encroachments and illegal dealings in regard to the less favored classes of the population. The state had to appeal to private persons of wealth and influence because it was not able to transmit its commands to the inert masses of the population in any other way. Aristocratic privilege was from this point of view a confession of debility on the part of the empire. But the inefficiency of the state was recognized by its subject as well, and as a natural result, they applied for protection to the strong and the wealthy, although such a recourse to private authority led to the infringement of public interests and to the breakup of public order. Private patronage appears as a threatening symptom with which the emperors have to deal. In the time of undisputed authority of the commonwealth, it was a usual occurrence that benefactors of a town or village, persons who had erected waterworks, built baths, or founded an elementary institution for destitutes, should be honored by the title of patroni, and by certain privileges in regard to precedence and ceremonial rights. The emperors of the 4th and of the 5th century had to forbid patronage because it constituted a menace to law and to public order. We hear of cases of quote-unquote maintenance, parties to a trial being protected by powerful patroni, who seek to turn the course of justice in favor of their clients. Libanius, a professional orator in the epoch of Valentinian II and Theodosius I, 
gives a vivid description of the difficulties he had to meet in a suit against some Jewish tenants of his, who refused to pay certain rents according to ancient custom. If we are to believe our informant, they had recourse to the protection of a commander of troops stationed in the province, and when Libanius came into court and produced witnesses, he found the judge so prepossessed in favor of his opponents that he could not get a hearing, and his witnesses were thrown into prison or dismissed. In another part of the same speech, Libanius in ways against officers who prevent the collection of taxes and rents and favor brigandage. There may be a great deal of exaggeration in the impassioned account of the Greek reader, but the principal heads of his accusation can be confirmed from other sources, especially from imperial decrees. A company of soldiers gets quartered in a village, and when the curiales of the next town appear to collect taxes or rents, they are met by violence and may be called fortunate if they escape without grievous injury to life and limbs. In the Theodosian Code, enactments directed against patronage in villages go so far as to forbid the acquisition of property in a rural district by outsiders, for fear the strangers should prove powerful people capable of opposing tax collectors. According to the account of Selvian, a priest who lived in the 5th century in southern Gaul, patronage had become quite prevalent in that region. People turned to private protection out of sheer despair and surrendered their land to the protector, rather than face the extortions of public authorities. There can be no doubt that patrons and protectors of the kind described, if they were helpful to some, were dangerous and harmful to others, and the state in the 4th and 5th centuries had good reasons to fight against their influence. But the constant repetition of the same injunctions and prohibitions proves that the evil was deeply rooted and difficult to get rid of. The Sisyphean task undertaken by the government in its struggle against abuses and encroachments is well illustrated by various attempts to create special authorities to repress the exactions of ordinary officers and to correct their mistakes. One of the principal expedients used by Diocletian and his successors was to institute a special service of supervising commissaries under the names of agentes in rebus and curiosi. They were sent into the provinces more particularly to investigate the management of the public post, but as a matter of fact, they were employed to spy on governors, tax collectors and other officials. They received complaints and denunciations and sometimes committed people to prison. A decree of Constantinus tries to restrict the latter practice and to impress on these curiosi the idea that they are not to act in a wanton manner but have to produce evidence and to communicate with the regular authorities. AD 355, Codex Theodosianus 629.1. But the very existence of such a peculiar institution was an incitement to delation and arbitrary acts, and in 395 Arcadius and Honorius try to concentrate the activity of the agentes in rebus on the inspection of the post. Quote, they ought not to levy illicit tolls from ships, nor to receive reports and statements of claims, nor to put people into prison. End quote. Codex Theodosianus 629.8 
the service of the agentes and of the curiosi was deemed to be as important as it was dangerous, and those who went through the whole career were rewarded by the high rank of counts of the first class. It is hardly to be wondered at that these extraordinary officers, provided with peculiar methods of delation, did not succeed in saving the empire from the corruption of its ordinary officers. And yet the emperors found that the only means of exercising some control over the abuses of the bureaucratic machinery and the oppression of influential people was in pitting extraordinary officials against them. The Defensor Civitatis was designed to act as a protector of the lower orders against such misdeeds. The office originated probably in voluntary patronage bestowed on cities by great men but it was regularized and made general under Valentinian I. The enactment of Gratian, Valentinian II, and Theodosius lays chief stress on the protection afforded by defensores to the plebs in regard to taxation. The defensor ought to be like a father to the plebs, to prevent superexaction and hardships in the assessment of taxes, both in regard to the town population and to rustics to shield them against the insolence of officials and the impertinence of judges. Not merely fiscal oppression was aimed at, but also abuses in the administration of justice, and the emperors tried to obviate the evils of a costly litigation and inaccessible tribunals by empowering the defensores to try civil cases in which poor men were interested. It was somewhat difficult to draw the line between such exceptional powers and ordinary jurisdiction, but the government of the later empire had often to meet similar difficulties. An important privilege of the defensores was the right to report directly to the emperor over the governor of the province. This was the only means for making protests effective, at least in some cases. As to the mode of electing the defensores, we notice some variation. They are meant to represent the population at large, and originally the people took part in their election, though it had to be confirmed by the emperors. In the 5th century, however, the office became a burden more than an honor. A quantity of petty police functions and formal supervision was stacked onto it, and the emperors are left with no choice but to declare that all notable citizens of the town have to take it in turn. This is certainly a sign of decline, and there can be no doubt that the original scope of the institution was gradually lost sight of. A third aspect of the same tendency to counterbalance the evil working of official administration by checks from outside forces may be noticed in the political influence assigned to the church. Here, undoubtedly, the emperors of the 4th and 5th centuries reached firm ground. It was not a mere shuffling of the same pack of cards, not a pitting of one official against the other by the help of devices which at best answered only for a few years. It was an appeal from a defective system to a fresh and mighty force which drew forth the best capabilities of the age and shaped its ideals. If anywhere, one could hope to find disinterested effort, untiring energy, and fearless sense of duty among the representatives of the Church, and it is clear that both government and people turned to them on especially trying occasions. 
we need not here speak of the intense interest created by ecclesiastical controversies or of the signal evidence of vigorous moral and intellectual life among the clergy. But we have to take these facts into account if we want to explain the part assumed by church dignitaries in civil administration and social affairs. A significant expression of the confidence inspired in the public by ecclesiastical authorities may be seen in the custom of applying to them for arbitration instead of seeking redress in the ordinary courts. The custom in question had its historical roots in the fact that before the recognition of Christianity as a state religion by the empire, the Christians tried to abstain as far as possible from submitting disputes and quarrels to the jurisdiction of pagan magistrates. There was a legal possibility of escaping from such interference of pagan authorities by resorting to the arbitration of persons of high moral authority within the church, especially bishops. When Christianity conquered under Constantine, episcopal arbitration was extended to all sorts of cases, and an attempt was made, as is shown by two enactments of this emperor, Constitutio Sirmondiana 17.1, to convert it into a special form of expeditious procedure, well within the reach of the poorer classes. Episcopal awards in such cases were exempted from the ordinary strict forms of compromise accompanied by express stipulation. The procedure was greatly simplified and shortened. The recourse of one party to the suit to such arbitration was held to be obligatory for the other party. At the close of the 4th century, Arcadius considerably restricted this wide jurisdiction conceded to bishops and tried to reduce it to voluntary arbitration pure and simple. But the moral weight of their decisions was so great that the ecclesiastical tribunals continued to be overwhelmed with civil cases brought before them by the parties. Not only Ambrose of Milan, who lived in the time of Theodosius the Great, but also Augustine, who belongs chiefly to the first quarter of the 5th century, complain of the heavy burden of judicial duties which they have to bear. The bishops had no direct criminal jurisdiction, but through the right of sanctuary claimed by churches, and in consequence of the general striving of Christian religion for humanity and charity, they were constantly pleading for grace, mitigation of sentences, charitable treatment of prisoners and convicts, etc., Panic-stricken and persecuted persons and criminals of all kinds flocked for refuge to the churches. Famous cathedrals and monasteries presented curious sights in those days. They seemed not only places of worship, but also caravansaries of some kind. Fugitives camped not only in the churches, but at a distance of fifty paces around them. Gangs of these poor wretches accompanied priests and deacons on their errands and walks outside the church, as in such company they were held to be secure from revenge and arrest. The government restricted the right of fiscal debtors to take sanctuary in order to escape from the payment of taxes, but in other respects it upheld the claims of ecclesiastical authority. Certain compromises with existing law and custom had undoubtedly to be effected. The Church did not attempt, for instance, to proclaim the abolition of slavery. It merely negotiated with the masters in order to obtain promises of better treatment or a pardon of offenses. 
but it countenanced in every way the emancipation of slaves and protected freedmen when once manumitted. The acts of councils of the 4th century are full of enactments in these respects, e.g. Council of Orange, chapter 7, Council of Arles, 2, chapters 33-34. Another domain in which the authority of the bishops found ample scope for its assertion was the sphere of moral police, if one may use the expression. To begin with, pious Christians were directed by the gospel to visit prisoners, and this commandment of Christ became the foundation for supervision of the clergy over the state of prisons. Their sanitary conditions, baths, food, the treatment of convicts, etc. In those times when terrible need and famines were frequent, parents had the legal right to sell their children directly after their birth, sanguinolenti. And a person who had taken care of a foundling was considered its owner. It is to ecclesiastical authorities that the emperors turn in order to prevent these rights from degenerating into a ruthless kidnapping of children. The church enforces a delay of ten days in order that parents who wish to take back their offspring should be able to formulate their claims. If they have not done so within the days of respite, let them never try to vindicate their flesh and blood any more. Even the church will treat them as murderers. Council of Vaison, chapters 9-10 Again, ecclesiastics are called upon to prevent the sale of human beings for immoral purposes. No one ought to be forced to commit adultery or to offer oneself for prostitution, even if a slave, and bishops as well as secular judges, have the power to emancipate slaves who have been subjected by their masters to such ignominious practices. They are also bound to watch that women, either free or unfree, should not be constrained to join companies of pantomime actors or singers against their will. Codex Justinianus 1 for 10. In conclusion, it may be useful to point out once more that the social process taking place in the Roman Empire of the 4th and 5th centuries presented features of decline and of renovation at the same time. It was brought about to a great extent by the increased influence of lower classes and the influx of barbarous customs, and in so far it expresses itself in an undoubted lowering of the level of culture. The sacrifice of political freedom and local patriotism to a centralized bureaucracy, the rigid state of siege and the caste legislation of the Constantinian and Theodosian era produced an unhealthy atmosphere of compulsion and servility. But at the same time, the Christian Church asserts itself as a power not only in the spiritual domain, but also in the legal and economic sphere. Society falls back to a great extent on the lines of local life and of aristocratic organization. But the movement in this direction is not merely a negative one. Germs appear which, in their further growth, were destined to contribute powerfully towards the formation of feudal society. End of section 66